0: Do you ever wonder, what would it take to please God? I think we all wonder that sometimes. What would it take to make God happy with me? Have you ever thought that? Is there anything that we can do? Should we be, for for instance, should we be faithful church members? Is he pleased with that? Should we be, how about passionate prayer warriors? Does that please God? Maybe we should be enthusiastic evangelists. God, tell everyone. Can we please God that way? Well, Scripture actually tells us that on our own, we can't please God, believe it or not. The honest truth is that we are all sinners who have rebelled against God, breaking His heart. Romans 8, 8 tells us that those who are in the flesh that is just a a regular human body, without the Holy Spirit, cannot please God. However, the Bible also tells us some other things. It also tells us that through Jesus Christ, people can now please God. That God is a personal God, He has emotions, and we can somehow bring a smile to God's face. And the New Testament gives us a number of instructions that basically say... Do such and such, for this pleases God. Do this because this pleases the Lord. These commands include giving sacrificially, preaching the gospel, praying faithfully, and living in godliness. These are some of the ways this tells us that we can now actually please God through Jesus. But there is one, more than all of these, there is one undergirding ultimate way that Scripture tells us that we can please God with our lives. We're going to look at what that is today. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you a more specific question Then how can we please God. And that is this. How can we amaze God? Can we amaze God? Now, I'll admit, that question sounds a bit sacrilege. So, let me explain. Technically, We cannot ever amaze God because amazement entails some kind of surprise or awe. And God is neither surprised nor awed by us or anything that we do. Okay? Get that straight. However, when God's Son came to earth as Jesus, a man, the situation was a bit different. See, Jesus, as he came as a man, veiled some of his divine attributes during his time on earth. And this included what we call his omniscience, or his ability to know everything, his all-knowingness. So Jesus, as a man on earth, didn't necessarily know everything at all times while he was on earth. At any given moment, he only knew as much as he physically learned, or as much as the Holy Spirit revealed to him, moment to moment. Now, of course... Jesus was still ultra-smart and wise. He was a perfect man, after all. And the Holy Spirit did reveal many things to him that only God knew. This may all be confusing to you. I know that. Here's my only point in all this. That during his time on earth, Jesus could be surprised. He could be, and because he could be surprised, he could be amazed at human actions. I know this to be true because of the story we're going to read today from the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible yourself, there's some in the pew in front of you, and you will be on page 863. 863 will get you to Luke 7. Today, we're going to read an amazing story about Jesus being amazed. And we're going to see what it is that he was so amazed by. I'll give you a hint. It's the same thing the Bible the Bible says especially pleases God. It's the same thing. And we'll see what this entails for our lives today, because it does. It absolutely applies to each one of our lives this morning. Before we dig in, I'd like to pray for our time together. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to your word, soften them, Let them receive your truth. I pray for each one here that has come in these doors, that if there is someone here who does not know you, that what you say in your word this morning would get to them. And I pray that your spirit would be working in each of our hearts, helping us see how this applies to every single one of us and what it means to have faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. just to catch you up on where we are in Luke for most of the chapter most of chapter 6 in Luke Jesus gave a pretty incredible sermon which we finished up last week now we're going to move back into seeing a number of narrative accounts stories of Jesus ministry and the first one in chapter 7 takes place in the town of Capernaum in verse 1 in chapter 7, it just says, after he had finished all his sayings, so after he finished the sermon and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, if you remember back when we saw Capernaum before, Capernaum was acting like a home base for Jesus' ministry at this time. And this is where he stayed most of his ministry from. Capernaum was a little fishing town in Galilee, the northern area of Israel. Jesus spent a lot of time in this town, in the surrounding area, teaching, casting out demons, healing diseases, calling disciples, all the things we know of his ministry he was doing here in Capernaum. Now, in Jesus' day, Israel was not an independent nation, and you all know this. Israel was ruled by Rome like most of the world, and as was the case in many places in Israel, there were constant reminders of their subjugation. Rome had the habit of posting garrisons of soldiers all over the place. In strategic locations, one of which was Capernaum. In verse 2, we meet the man who was likely the commander of the Galilean outpost. Read with me verse 2. It says this. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and, and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. A centurion was a rank... ...in the Roman military, who was placed in charge of 100 soldiers, like cent or century centurion, okay? And we're not given this man's name or much about his background at all. All we know is, at this point, that he would have been strong, likely rich, powerful, influential in the community. Verse 2 also implies that he had servants, whether voluntary or involuntary, we don't know. But there was one in particular that this centurion especially liked... So now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him. So for whatever reason, the centurion cared deeply about this servant. Perhaps the servant had been a close friend of his and had borrowed some money from him. And then when he wasn't able to pay his debts, he offered himself as what we call a bond servant to work for him in order to pay off the debt. Maybe he had become a servant unwillingly at first, but over many years of working together, he had just become a friend of the centurion. Beyond the fact that he was cared for, all we know for sure about this servant is that he was sick. It said that this man was at the he was sick and at the point of death. So he just didn't have the sniffles or the stomach flu. He was beyond sick. The death watch had begun. They were Just waiting for him to pass away. Just waiting for the inevitable. Imagine being in the centurion's shoes. He has a close friend, and he's just watching him waste away and waiting for the day that he dies. It's It's a very hard situation. But then, what we know from this story, is that someone told the centurion about Jesus and what Jesus had been doing in the area. Just the first few words of verse 3 says that when the centurion heard about Jesus. My only thought is, I'm surprised this hadn't happened sooner with what Jesus had been doing. Look at, this had gone down in Capernaum, back in verse 4, or chapter 4, it said, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. You think that would make the local newspaper? (laughs) For sure. Chapter 6. He came down right in the same area as Capernaum. He came down and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch Jesus for power came out from him and healed them all. These were huge happenings. And for whatever reason, the centurion hadn't heard before, but now someone said, hey, Jesus is doing this. And you can imagine what the centurion must have thought. This guy has healed multiple diseases already, all kinds of people with all kinds of sicknesses. He healed a guy that had leprosy. He healed a guy that had a withered hand. He healed someone who was completely paralyzed? If he can do all that, I'll bet he can heal my servant. Oh, and what's that you say? He's in Capernaum now? I gotta go see him. So, what'd he do? In true military fashion, he sent an envoy on his behalf. (laughs) And he made the request for Jesus to come heal his servant. Says verse 3, When the centurion heard about Jesus he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. In these verses, we already see something about the centurion's response to his situation, which is absolutely exemplary for us as followers of Christ. And we'll see it only come out much stronger as the story goes on. We wouldn't know that the centurion's actions were praiseworthy, except for that later in this account, Jesus praises them enthusiastically himself. And if Jesus praises something, you know it's something that we ought to do. Okay? Now, here's the main point of this entire story, starting with these three verses, but really from the whole thing, is this, that we should have faith that Jesus has the ability to accomplish anything. Okay? That's the point. The big idea. We need to have faith that Jesus can do anything He wants to do at any time. Strong faith in his ability and power to accomplish anything. The centurion in this story heard about Jesus, believed what he heard, and then sent for Jesus. And this exhibited the beginnings of his faith. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come heal his servant. Okay, Now, faith a funny word. It's tossed around a lot. If you don't know what it means, faith is essentially belief. Believing in, So faith in Jesus is believing in Jesus. Believing that Jesus is who he said he was. Believing that he did what the scripture says he did. Believing that he can save you or that he has saved you today. Faith is mental, it's emotional, and it's physical ascent which automatically leads to a changed life. Faith always leads to changing your life. According to Jesus, many places in his teaching, faith is of utter and ultimate importance. It's a necessary part of our salvation, and it's an essential part of growing in our walk with God. So it's very important on both sides of salvation. Now, I think we can read this story today and identify ourselves with both the servant and the centurion in different ways. Let me explain. Like the servant, all of us are nearing death every day of our lives. You're not getting any younger. Some of us may be physically nearing our last days on earth in the near future. Some of us may not even know that. It doesn't matter what age you are. Death is approaching us all. Ultimately, all of us are destined to face death one day. And at that time, people will say of us, much like they said of the servant, he or she is at that point. They're at the point of death. We're just waiting. We're all mortal like this because of the death penalty that we are all under because of sin. We are... All sick with sin and destined to die, physically and spiritually. Philip Reichen says that death is the need behind all our other needs and the sum of all our fears. We can identify with the servant in this way, recognizing that we all need to be saved from death. We all have to. There has to be a solution. But in this story... I think we can also identify with the second person. We can identify with the centurion as well. Because not only are we mortal, not only do we have great needs, so do those that we love and care about. Everyone we know is in the same boat. I know that there are people that you care about deeply that are in great need. I know this. As we saw last week, we all go through storms, no matter who we are. They're inevitable, and the people that we love are no exception. Perhaps someone you know is dying. Maybe they're in the hospital, and you're at this point of just waiting. Perhaps there's all kinds of different health issues that they may be going through. Maybe a close friend or family member is in the deep recesses of debt or financial need and burden. Perhaps you're watching a friend battle depression or doubt. Tragedy. Comes in all shapes and sizes. Maybe you've been sharing the gospel with someone, and they just keep rejecting it. They keep turning it down, over and over again. So, here's the question. What do we do when there is nothing else we can do to help the people we love? What do we do? Good question. Take a lesson from the centurion. Take it to Jesus. Because, have faith faith that Jesus can do something about your or your friend's situation because he can. He's the only one that can. And there are huge implications for our prayer life in these verses. Huge. The centurion truly believed that his servant could be healed. He didn't asked Jesus to come and try to heal his servant. He asked Jesus to come and heal him. And he believed that Jesus could do anything. Do we believe this? Do we really believe this? That Jesus could do anything? Of course it's true that he won't do everything, but he could Do anything. He can heal someone on the brink of death. He can heal any disease. He can restore and bring peace to a relationship that seems irreparable. He can miraculously bring someone out of depression or financial difficulties. And he can change the hardest heart to respond to the gospel. He can do anything. I think many times he's just waiting for us to ask. Or to really ask. To ask in faith. So that he can show his power in the greatest way possible. Now you might think, as we say this, well, sure, Jesus could do anything. I I believe that. Jesus could do anything. But why in the world would he? Why in the world would he care about me or those I care about? Why would he answer my prayers? And you might have faith in his ability, but not in his desire or his willingness to. You're skeptical there. This is a good question, because who are we? Who are we that he would care about us? We just talked about the fact that we're all sick with sin, We're all destined to die. We don't deserve his attention, let alone his affection. And yet, he cares. Yet he cares. The next few verses of this story, we learn a really valuable aspect of having faith in Jesus. And that is this, that we should have faith that Jesus has the ability to accomplish anything in our lives, regardless of our worthiness. Okay? We should have faith in Jesus, regardless of whether or not we are worthy of his love and care. You notice something really interesting in verse 3? Who did the centurion send to find Jesus? It says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So he sent some elders or respected leaders of the Jews. Do you realize how strange that is? Jews and Romans despised each other. They didn't like each other at all. Why would a Roman send Jews to get Jesus? Why wouldn't he just send some of his soldiers or some of his other servants? Well, perhaps he thought that Jesus would respond better if the request was coming from a fellow Jew. Maybe he assumed that if he went himself or if he sent another Gentile, Jesus might not even give him the time of day. So, he sent Jews. But then we wonder, well, why in the world would the Jews go along with this? Why would they be willing to be sent by him? Were they being forced or coerced into doing this? Did he threaten them in some way? Well, believe it or not, the Jews actually liked this Roman. (laughs) So, a, a liked Roman actually existed. He was an exception to the norm. But the Jews generally loved the guy. Read with me in verse 4. It says this, And when the Jews came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So, the Jews had such great respect for the centurion that it says they pleaded earnestly on his behalf. They begged Jesus. Why would they admire the man so much? Well, He was a seemingly great guy. That's what it says. Just in case Jesus wondered why he should help this foreign invader, they told him. They started listing what they saw as his virtues and his merit. They say, this guy's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Someone here today asked me last week to be a reference for them, for getting a passport. And I readily agreed to do so, and if these people ever call me for a reference, I'll be happy to explain that why this guy deserves a passport. <laughs> it's pretty normal. That's basically what the Jews are doing for the centurion here. They were giving him a reference, a good reference to Jesus. And why did the Jews give this good reference? Why did they think him worthy of Jesus' help? First, because he loved Israel. Verse 5 said, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves... Our nation. That was a very rare quality for a Roman. Most nations are happy to welcome foreigners in who will love their country, but not people who don't. Right? It just doesn't make sense. As an American-born citizen, if I moved here to Canada, but said all along, I hate Canada. I don't want to be here. Stupid Canada. How would you feel? Go back to where you came from then, <laughs> right? We don't want you here if you don't want to be here. Most Roman soldiers who came from Rome, went to Israel, posted to Palestine, probably were not very happy to be there. They were far away from home in a strange foreign land with people who hated them. But for whatever reason, this centurion wasn't like that. And the Jews knew that he loved Israel. And so they welcomed him to be there. Second reason, they thought him worthy was what he had done. It said, for he loves our nation and he is the one who has built us our synagogue. Let me explain what this would mean. We here at Calvary have this beautiful but aging church building that we worship in. Okay? It's required a lot of work to be done over the, over the years, and it'll need more in the future, but we're thankful. God has blessed us, and we're thankful for what we have. But imagine with me, okay? Imagine if someday some really rich guest came along and said, I love what you're doing as a church. I love what God is doing through you. And God has blessed me in some great ways, and I feel that God wants me to bless you in return. So, he comes and hands us a check for $3 million. And says, go out, build yourself a brand new, spanking new building. (laughs) Okay? That's basically what this guy did for the Jews in Capernaum. He financed an entire new synagogue for them to worship him. A beautiful new building. When I visited Israel, I got to visit the ruins of the synagogue. Many of them are still standing. It's an incredible building that he had built for them. He had no obligation to do this. But he just cared about people. He cared about helping them out. So, see, just in this very short verses here, that he was a good man. He genuinely cared for people. He was generous. As a centurion, he had to be strong, reliable, courageous, all-around good guy. So when he asked some Jews to go find Jesus and bring him there, they gladly went. Sure, we'll give you a reference. Verse 6 tells us, though, And Jesus went with them. Let's stop there. Okay, So Jesus agreed to go with them. He was willing to go heal the servant. But I wonder as I read that, did Jesus agree with their assessment of the guy? Did Jesus agree to go and help the servant simply because the centurion was worthy? Did he do that? Well, we don't know for sure, but I suspect not. I suspect not because this is not how Jesus usually worked. All throughout his ministry, Jesus usually healed people simply because he had compassion. On them, not because they deserved to have him healed. He never did it to, because they deserved it. We ask, well, what determines someone's worthiness to receive any blessing from God? And the answer is, nothing makes us worthy to be blessed by God. Nothing makes us worthy. That's the beauty of grace. That it's completely undeserved. God doesn't heal, save, or bless us because of our good references, no matter how good they are. He heals, saves, and blesses us because he loves us. The fact of the matter is, we are not worthy, but God cares anyway. It's amazing. I think the centurion understood this truth because of what he says next. In verse 6, Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. So in verse 4, we have the Jews saying, He is worthy. And in verse 6, the centurion says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. The man said he was unworthy to even have Christ come to his house. And then he said he was unworthy to even go and meet Christ. Verse 6 and 7 in the New Living Translation says, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I am not even worthy to come and meet you. That's why he sent people in the first place. After the centurion sent the Jews to meet Jesus, he must have had some serious second thoughts. (laughs) Oh man, I just asked Jesus to come to my house? What am I thinking? He's not going to have time for me. He's a busy man. He's a great man. What a selfish request I just made. Asking him to go way out of his way to come here. Who do I think I am? And so he sent some more people to backtrack for him. And basically, Jesus, never mind. You don't need to come. What the centurion was saying was actually completely true. He obviously realized some of who Jesus was and he knew that no one deserved him. No one was worthy of him. And yet, Jesus was already on the way. He was already going. Not because of the man's worthiness, but because of his compassion and love. This points us right to the heart of the gospel. None of us are worthy to have had Jesus come and die and rise again for us. And yet, he did. He saw our need. Sinful, doomed to die, without hope, unworthy. And yet, he saw us with compassion. He saw us with love. And he came anyway. He reversed everything. He, We deserve death. He didn't, and yet he took death. He deserved life. We didn't, and yet he gave life. And now, we can come to him today by faith. Boldly, unashamed, and receive his healing. Saying, Jesus, I am unworthy. But I believe that you love me. I believe that you died for me. Thank you. Have you done this before? Have you accepted Jesus' grace regardless of your worthiness? Have you believed by faith that he died and rose again to save you from your sins? have you believe if you'd like to talk about this or pray with someone i'd love to speak with you after the service there are others here who would as well you may not today you may not feel worthy of jesus and that's true but he loves you anyway you may not feel worthy but he's come anyway for you and i'll tell you this he is worthy he is worthy of our complete devotion, our entire lives. So come. Come to him today. Ask him to heal you from your deadly condition. And he will. By grace. Notice in the story that though the centurion withdrew his request to have Jesus come to his house, He didn't withdraw his request to have Jesus heal his servant. He realized that despite who he was, despite his unworthiness, Jesus may still answer his request. He appealed to Jesus' compassion and also to Jesus' power. His next words in verse 7 are simply incredible. When he says, verse 7, Therefore I do not presume to come to you, but say the word, And let my servant be healed. By making this request, the centurion showed some amazing faith. From what he says in these verses, we see a clear reason as well for why we should have faith today, and that is this that we should have faith that Jesus has the ability to accomplish anything because Jesus has unlimited authority. Our faith should be strong that Jesus can do anything because of his authority. Okay, let's read this request again. Really quick request. Verse 7 But say the word and let my servant be healed. So, on the one hand, he was asking Jesus for something much simpler. On the other hand, it was way more impressive. The centurion was asking Jesus for something that no one knew if he could do. This was, think about it, this is not how Jesus ever healed people before. Think, most people who came. To Jesus, ask Jesus, Jesus, touch me. Touch my friend. And they'll be healed. The centurion believed that Jesus could do way more than that. He didn't need to touch him. All he needed to do was say the word from far away and it would happen. How was he so bold? How did he have such strong belief? Well, it's because he understood authority. Let's keep reading. It says, But say the word and let my servant be healed. Verse 8, For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, Do this, and he does it. Now, so he used an example from his military background. Let me ask you, if a, in the military, if a general, okay, Way up there, tells a private to carry out a command. Does the private have a choice to question, ignore, or disobey the command? No! Of course not. If someone who has a higher rank than him gives him a direct order, he has no choice but to obey that order immediately and without question. So, private, go and guard that bridge. Private, come clean your bunk. Private, On the ground, thousand push ups, now! (laughs) Sir, yes, sir! (laughs) Authority within military hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It was the same in Jesus' day. Soldiers followed orders or else. And he says, For I too am a man set under authority. ...with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. This centurion knew what it meant to have authority over soldiers. After all, he had a hundred in his command. But here's a question. Where did the centurion's authority come from? Who gave him a right to order people around? Well, he had authority over some, because he was under the authority of others. That's where it came from. A centurion was not the highest-ranking officer in the Roman army. He derived his authority from his superior officers, who derived their authority from their superior officers, who derived their authority on and on and on, up all the way to Caesar. So, when a centurion gave an order, it was therefore backed... By the entire Roman Empire. That's what gave him the right to order people around. By his statement in verse 8, the centurion was saying that he understood authority and he acknowledged that Jesus had some significant amounts of authority as well. Say, I too am a man. You're under authority, I'm under authority. But what kind of authority did Jesus have? And where did it come from? Well, let's think this through, okay? What did the centurion want Jesus to do? Wanted him to heal his servant. So then, he appeals to Jesus' authority in order to heal his servant. Which means, he was saying Jesus had authority to do what? To heal. Now, what would Jesus have to have authority over in order to heal? Nature. Nature. Right? The natural world. He had to be able to intervene and miraculously control nature. He had authority over that. If you remember back in Luke 4, we saw Jesus already exhibit this type of authority. As he healed Peter's mother-in-law, He it says that he rebuked the fever, and it left her. He gave it an order, and it left. The centurion went even further than that. By asking Jesus to heal over distance, he had faith that Jesus could bend the rules of time and space. Basically, he was saying Jesus had authority, the right to do anything he wanted to do, that it was unlimited. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said as much. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. My wife and I were reading a parenting book this week called Shepherding a Child's Heart, a very popular one by Ted Tripp, and we came across a chapter all about authority, and it was entitled, You're in Charge. The basic idea behind the chapter is that parents have to wield authority in the home, that it's our responsibility to do so, and that parents are in charge of the home because God is in charge of Everything. And God has vested his authority in the home to parents as his agents in the home. He tells a story of his children, and he says, Our boys were out in the shed working on a go-kart. Our daughter went out to call them for dinner. You both are to go inside, wash up, and get ready for dinner. Right now, she announced authoritatively. Are the boys coming in? My wife inquired when our daughter had returned to the house alone. I called them, she said with a look that betrayed her attempts to pull a power play on the boys. Why hadn't the boys come in? Because it was their sister who had called them, and they were not about to obey based on her authority. She returned to the shed with the same message and added two powerful words. Mother said. (laughs) Our daughter did not have the authority to order the boys into the house. The second time she called the boys, she called them as the agent of their mother, and then they knew. It was time to come. What this story tells me, Jesus was God's agent on earth. He was given authority over all the earth, over all the heavens. And because God was in charge, Jesus was in charge. Nature had to obey his commands. But really, more than just nature had to obey, everything had to obey his commands. And we are no exception. We're under his authority. This is why the centurion said that Jesus was under authority like he was. He may not have known all the details of how Jesus was God or part of the Trinity. However, he definitely recognized that Jesus was God's agent on earth. And so, just like the centurion's orders were backed up by the entire Roman Empire, Jesus' orders were backed up by the entire kingdom of heaven. Jesus had been given that right to exercise power, the ability to exercise authority. The fact is, in our culture, we usually hate authority of any kind. We don't like being under authority, obeying authority, or on the other hand, we don't like having authority or exercising it. But Jesus' authority is unavoidable, inescapable, and absolute. You could say this, that Jesus is in charge. He is in charge of the natural, the supernatural, and everything in between. He's in charge of galaxies, planets, nations, governments, cities, homes, and you and me. And he has authority over all of us, whether we like it or not. Do we believe in Jesus' authority? Do we? If we truly grasp and believed his authority, we will obey him. But also like the centurion, if we believe in his authority, our faith in him will grow exponentially. We'll believe that he can do anything. Final quick thing we'll see in this story is one last reason that we should have faith. To review, we should have great faith that Jesus can do anything for us, regardless of whether or not we're worthy, and because he has all authority. And lastly, we should have faith that Jesus has the ability to accomplish anything, because Jesus loves rewarding great faith. This is really a principle we see throughout Scripture, but we see it very clearly in this story. We should have strong, growing faith in Jesus, because he loves to reward you. He really does. Remember what I asked you at the beginning. What would it take to amaze Jesus? What would it take to amaze him? Well, here's your answer. It takes great faith. Look at verse 9. It says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowds that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus was super impressed by the centurion's request. It showed some incredible faith. Now, like I said earlier, God wasn't surprised. But as a man, Jesus was. Marveling. He says he marveled. Marveling is what we do when we see a fancy hockey goal in the highlights. Whoa! That's crazy! How would he do that? Or or it's marveling when we're impressed by a magic trick. Just, whoa! Whoa! I have no idea how you did that. Marveling is what we do when we taste a mind-blowing meal. Mmm, <laughs> that is good. Marveling is what we do when we admire someone's musical talent. Like, wow, it's impressive. It's a form of verbal amazement and astonishment. And here it says, Jesus marveled at this man's faith. Wow! Now that is faith! What made this type of faith so impressive to Jesus? Well, he says it is because he hadn't seen anything like it. It says in verse 9: when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus hadn't found this type of faith with his family or his friends, he hadn't found it in his disciples, his apostles, he hadn't found it in the religious leaders in Israel, he hadn't found it in the synagogues, he hadn't found it in the crowds of people that followed him everywhere, asking him to heal them. He found it in a very unlikely place. In a rich, foreign, militaristic, pagan invader. He was and He marvelled. We don't know for sure whether the centurion was saved because of his faith. I would guess that he was, from all we know. It says he heard of Jesus, he believed him in him, and boy did he ever believe. To get Jesus to say, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Most other Bible translations say, nowhere have I found such great faith. Shouldn't it surprise us that Jesus got this excited over someone who had faith? Faith in Him is His primary desire from us. When we show faith, He is pleased. Hebrews eleven six says, "And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him." The centurion believed in God believed that Jesus held God's power and authority, and thus sought Jesus to meet his needs. And in so doing, God was pleased. God was pleased. And he loves rewarding this type of faith. Matthew's Gospel records this same story, and it records Jesus saying, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. The centurion asked him to simply say the word, So he said the word. And look what Luke says happened in verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. There's the miracle. Don't lose your wonder over how crazy this miracle was. Jesus didn't need to see the guy, touch the guy, or talk to the guy. All he had to say was, let it be done. From another location altogether, and it was done. It's incredible. And whatever sickness the servant had, he commanded to leave. Nature had to obey. Its creator was speaking, giving it an order. Notice what Jesus was doing here. We already know he healed the man because he had compassion, but he healed purposefully in response to the centurion's faith. See that? This miracle, this is such an incredible miracle, it shows us that Jesus could have healed him from anywhere he wanted. He didn't need to wait for the centurion to come and even ask him. But he waited. Why? Because he wanted to show his power Being displayed through faith. That's what he still does today. God wants to show his unlimited power and authority through our limited faith. So, do we believe he can? Do we believe he will? Do we believe at all? How are our prayers? Are our prayers filled with faith? Do we believe that prayer can be answered? Do we dare to pray big? Or are all our prayers just little requests of God? Do we actually believe that God could answer our biggest Prayers. Ask yourself, what can God do through a person that has great faith? What can God do through a church full of people that has great faith? He loves to answer prayers of faith. He loves to reward people of faith. In verse 9, when Jesus marveled to the crowd, he said... I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. You know what this tells me? Jesus is looking for faith. He's looking for He's searching for people with faith. He is seeking people who will seek Him. In Luke 18, verse 8, which we'll eventually get to, Jesus asks this question. He says, When the Son of Man returns... Will he find faith on earth? Jesus is still looking for people with great faith. Will he find it? Will he find it in me? Will he find it in you? Will he find it among us? I deeply pray that he does. Lord, increase our faith. And may our faith cause others, in turn, to marvel not at how amazing our faith is, but at how amazing our God is. Heavenly Father, like I just said, I pray that you would increase our faith exponentially. Help us see how powerful you are how strong you are. Help us to believe. You know how we struggle to sometimes. Please bless us. Help our hearts to understand. Help us to see your power. And help us to fall on our knees at amazement at how great you are. For you are the God who looks for faith and you're the God who answers prayer. We thank you for this. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name.